Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It's been so long since we met here on Sunday night, I had to get reoriented just a little bit. I don't know about you, but I mean, I had to go back and kind of look. I knew I was in the book of Philippians. I had told Leslie uh, back in January that I was marking out things, getting ready for a different sermon series, and I said, uh, I'm going to preach through the book of Philippians from basically January to September. And she looked at me and she said, what? Only four chapters you find in the book of Philippians? How could you stretch it out that much? I know you can stretch out things, but how can you go that long? I said, it's because we got so much other things that we're doing sometimes on Sunday night, so it takes me out. So she gave me a little grace, all right, after that. But, you know, I had to go back and kind of look and see where we were. And looking at Philippians chapter 2 and those first few verses, I was reminded really how Paul was talking to this early church about their unity, about their like-mindedness, about what he hoped that, that they would experience as a church body and how he would be joyful if they would come together as God's people and demonstrate a similar purpose, that they would demonstrate unity together. The book of Philippians is a lot about unity. I mean, really it is. It's about joy. You'll hear people talk about that. I mean, joy is mentioned over and over. But one of the reasons it speaks about joy is because it speaks about unity. And most churches that find joy are churches that are unified in purpose and mission. I'm convinced of that. You want to go find a miserable church or a sad church? Well, go and find a church that is not unified in purpose and in mission. If it's divided... If there are divisions, if things are going on in the church that has gotten them off track, you'll not find much joy. But in a church that is united in purpose and mission, you will find the joy of Christ. Paul says, I want you as a, as a Philippian church, a church that basically he had founded, that he had loved, that now he was writing to. He says, I want you as a church to experience the joy of unity. And how does that happen? He, he began to speak about that again in these first verses of chapter 2 by saying that you look at other people's interest, that it's not just about you, but it's about other people. Oh, what a message that is, right? And how that should communicate to us today. I mean, I'm constantly challenged by it because my temptation is to always put my interest above other people. You may not have that temptation, but I do have that temptation in my life. There's certain preferences. There's certain things in my life and certain things within the church's life that, hey, I, this is the way I'd like it. And yet, what we hear Paul saying is if we're to experience unity and that joy that comes with it, is that we've got to look at the interest of other people. That's what he said in the first few verses. Now, in verses 5 through 11, he gives us an example. Of that type of lifestyle, that type of mindset. And this is the way he frames it. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul says, if you want to have an example of what it means to look to other people's interest, all you've got to do is look to the example of Christ. That's what Paul says. He says, all we've got to do is to look at Jesus. He says, as a matter of fact, what I want you as a church to do is to develop this collective mind of Christ. You share this same mindset. You share this same purpose. You share this same mentality. Now, we understand that there is a lot of diversity of thinking when we come together as God's people. I mean, everybody's got their own preferences, right? Okay, if you've got a preference as the way the church service should go, would you raise your hand? I'm proud most of you are honest. And there may be a few of y'all that say, hey, I don't really care. You know, I'm good. But most of, most of us have preferences, as I said earlier. Most of us do. So we come with our preferences. Nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having preferences. There's certain music I like, certain things I don't. There's nothing wrong with having preferences. But we need to understand that the mission and the purpose of the church must always, it, it must always supersede our preferences. Must always. The mission and the purpose of where we are, that's a place where we, we can't really disagree on. Uh, there's a foundation we have, right? For example, we think about the confession. We're going to look at it here in a moment. This idea that Jesus is Lord. That, that is a confession that is non-negotiable when we come as a church and as a people. We can have preferences on other things, but when we come together, we have to agree as a people that Jesus is Lord. If we can't get to that confession, we can't go very far. And we're not going to have unity, nor should we. If we can't get to that point that Jesus is Lord over who we are. And that Jesus is Lord over the church itself. You see, there is a place where we have this like-mindedness. This same purpose, this same mission, this same confession. And he says this has to be an ongoing effort in our lives. As a matter of fact, in verse 5, it is in the present tense. Let this mind like just keep building up in you. Let, let this mind... Go on and on, taking hold of who you are. Why, why does it have to be an ongoing process? Because like I said, we're so tempted to give in to our selfishness. We are. So I mean, we have to constantly, constantly say, we will allow the mind of Christ to indwell our lives. We will seek Him and His purpose and specifically we will humble ourselves. See, again, I love the way Paul gives the instruction and then he gives us the example of the illustration of Jesus. And he says, Jesus really shows us how we are to humble ourselves. Now, I believe this to be like an early hymn of the church. Based upon my study and reading, 
I think a lot of people would agree with me that this is an early hymn of the church that Paul borrows. Maybe some people have suggested Paul wrote it. Maybe he just, maybe he just imported it here. But it has great significance. As Paul says, this is the example of how we should look toward one another. He said, this Jesus, well, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Stop there. Most of the time we emphasize the exaltation of Jesus when we read this passage. About every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. We'll get to that. But when Paul is making his point here, he is actually emphasizing the humility of Christ. The humility of Christ. The humbling of Jesus. Remember again, back in verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And he says, hey, Jesus is an example of that. Jesus humbled himself. For us to have unity and for us to have joy, there must be humility. Humility in all our lives, humbling ourselves. That can be hard. Again, one of the reasons selfishness can overtake us is because we are a people who embrace pride in our lives. We can be very prideful. Confession time? Just a little bit? Yeah, we can. Absolutely. Pride can infect our lives. And if we're not careful, it can affect the unity and the joy of the local church. Paul says, think about Jesus a moment. Jesus was God. Hey, he was God. This last Wednesday night, I met with um, some in my class. I, I've told you before, some of my college students uh, come together. I think I've got a, about 11 right now that I'm meeting with, and we're, we're talking about some of these things. And I talked to them about Jesus' Godhood, His divinity, His deity, that He was God. And how, if you look at His life and you look at the Scripture, there's no doubt that He was God. Even in his self-consciousness and the way he spoke and the way he conducted himself, he knew that he was God. This passage says that Jesus, knowing that he's God, he emptied himself of all of the heavenly privileges that he had. Now, he still retained power. He still retained his deity. He was still the God-man when he was here. But he left the glories of heaven itself to come to this earth to take on flesh and to become a human like you and me. You know, we hear that story sometimes that so much that I think we fail to be amazed. I mean, sometimes we just kind of tuck it back and say, oh yeah, we've heard that, we've heard... Pre but just, just for a moment, just... Maybe consider it anew, afresh. God. God with all privileges. God with the, this heavenly sphere of influence. This God who commands this creation 
who commands us. This God took on flesh. And he came and he walked among us. How incredible that event, that message is. And that's what he's saying here is that is the very definition. It is the supreme example of humility that he left his heavenly privileges and he came to this earth. He did not feel that his position or at least um, the privileges of heaven was something to be grasped at or held on to. He was able to release those things to humble himself. Now that, again, proves difficult in our lives. Because what do we do? We try to hold on to position and privileges. If we get to a certain place in life, we try to hold on to it with everything that we have. Jesus said, I'm okay with just giving these things up. I'm okay with this. I'm okay with humbling myself. Why? Could he do such things? Well, I really think, I, I want to go back just a moment to the Gospel of John. Because when I was reading through Philippians 2 again and, and considering this idea of humility and, and how Jesus was able to leave the heavenly privileges and come to earth, my mind just came back to John chapter 13, specifically verse 3. Now, this is the Thursday night before his death. And it says the supper has ended. It says that Judas has already been influenced by Satan himself and Judas is going to betray him. And verse 3 of chapter 13 says this, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and he was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And of course, you remember the scene of his washing the feet of the disciples. Again, an example of humility. But listen to what that verse said, verse 3. Why could he get down on his knees and wash the disciples' feet? It is because he knew that God had given him authority over all things and that he knew that he had come from God and that he was going to God. In other words, he had a self-identity about himself. He, he, he understand or understood who he was. And nothing else could affect that or change that. His identity was secure in the Father. And I want to encourage you. The only way you can humble yourself is just really knowing who you are in your relationship to the Father. If you know... That God has done a work in your life and you know that he's going to work it out for his eternal purposes. Then it's a whole lot easier to humble yourself. It's not always about trying to gain the power or the privilege. You know what? I've got one of the greatest privileges already. I'm a child of God. I'm going to tell you, there's not much else that ranks up there for me. I have a position, and that position is secure in him. No matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter what this world would do or what this world would say, nothing's going to change my status as a child of God. And as a child of God, I can humble myself before him. And I can humble myself before you. Because I don't have to prove anything. He's already done all the proving for me. He's already done all of the work 
necessary for my salvation and really for my continued empowerment. He's done it all. And I know where I'm going. You know, you don't have to try to grab on to power when you realize that your future is secure in Him. I know what God's done in my life, and I know where I'm going. Jesus knew what He was doing. Jesus knew He was called to a purpose. That's the reason He humbled Himself, right? He was able to humble Himself to become a human, and He was able to humble Himself to the point of death. And notice what Paul said. He kind of just brought this out. Even the death of the cross. You want to talk about humility? I said a moment ago, think about God taking on flesh. Think upon God coming to this earth and hanging on a cross. It is said in the Old Testament that a person that would hang on a tree would be cursed. Literally, Jesus was cursed for our sin. He took our curse. He took our punishment. There he was hanging on the cross for all of those individuals to walk by and to see his shame, to see his pain. God, Jesus Christ, humbling himself to death, the death of the cross. I'm telling you folks, when that begins to infect your heart and life, it's really hard for you to be prideful. It's really hard for you to insist upon your own interest and ambitions. Because you and I have been given the greatest example of humility that we could ever know. When we have that type of humility within the church's context, you ain't got to worry about disunity. You ain't got to worry about division. Because you got people that are humbling themselves to one another in such a way that the corporate body is edified and he is glorified. That's the kind of believers that he wants us to be as we humble ourselves. Well, there is so much more. Listen, there is so much more that we could talk about in the humility. I mean, and I will say that when you look at these verbs, especially these later on, it's like a decisive action. In other words, he humbled himself. It's like he made that specific decision. I love the way somebody said it. Some years ago that here Jesus was, that, all, that he stood up. He took the initiative for us. We didn't force him. He, didn't ha- he just simply, out of his own desire to please the Father and to provide us salvation, he stood up and he took the initiative to die on the cross for us. Again, so much more in the humility that we could describe But I would be amiss to look at verse 9 and following. Because you have this great reversal where here he is humbled first and then he is exalted. 
Notice. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. So here God has taken his humility, his humbling, and now he has exalted him. Remember that the scripture teaches us that if we have pride, we will be humbled, debased. We will be. I mean, isn't that the way it works? Think about Satan for a moment. What did he try to do? He tried to exalt his throne above the throne of God himself. And what happened to him? He was debased. You want to talk about being humbled? He was humbled. But this is the, this is the biblical principle. When you humble yourself, that's when you, try, you find true exaltation. And Jesus gives us that example. Here he has been humbled, but now he is being exalted. Verse 9. Again, it says that he was highly exalted. One translation I looked at, one commentary said that the word actually means super exalted. That didn't make any of you excited. I, I saw that word, I like under, he is like super, I mean when you break down that Greek word, it's like he is super, super, super exalted. In other words, you can't get any higher than this. His name is above every other name. And remember when you look at the, this idea of name in the Old Testament, New Testament, it means person. It is synonymous with the individual, the character of the person. So it means that Jesus, that his name, yes, his personhood, his character, everything about him has now been exalted to the highest position that you could imagine. He has been highly exalted and given a name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because he gave himself, because he humbled himself, the Father exalted him. And he is exalted today. How this scripture fell. You know, I said before that We've been out for several weeks, obviously, and we were trying to get back together. And I thought, how appropriate this week we read this passage. God always seems to know what he's doing. That we're reading a passage this Easter week, the Passion Week. The week that we celebrate his humiliation on the cross, the humbling. And also the week that we celebrate his exaltation as demonstrated by the resurrection. This is a week above any other week when we should know and we should preach the lordship, the salvation of Jesus Christ and how His work and mission has made a difference in our lives. I am so grateful that now I can join with you as my brothers and sisters and just say, Jesus is Lord collectively. I will say to you again that our God is so great though, He deserves more than just the praise of Temple Baptist Church. He deserves the praise of every church in Ruston. He deserves the praise of every people in our community and in our state and in our nation. Our God is so big and He is the one that everybody should bow to and, and sing praises to that 
everyone across this globe ought to know that he can bring salvation and forgiveness to people's lives. And because of that, we should do everything that we can to spread his lordship. Because one day, one way or the other, one day he's going to return again. And one day when he comes, every eye will see. They'll know that he is the Lord. They will know that he was the Christ that was preached about. And one day, willingly or unwillingly, every tongue will confess. And every knee will bow. Because our Lord, Jesus Christ, was willing to humble himself to the mission and the purpose of the Father. He was willing to take upon human flesh and die on the cross. I say to you, it should challenge us to look toward each other's interests, to humble ourselves. It should challenge us to keep the unity of his people, his church, as we praise him, as we exalt him in who he is. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for just this um, brief moment to look at your word. God, thank you for this hymn that has been preserved by your Holy Spirit. And Father, tonight in this place, I pray for us as a church. Thank you for the unity that you have given us. Thank you for the joy that we feel across our congregation. God, I pray that you would continue to give us like-mindedness. When it comes to your purpose, mission, when it comes to the very heart of humility, Lord, help us to emulate your Son, the Lord Jesus. And God, help us together collectively as we humble ourselves to one another to be able to take this message to others. That Jesus is Lord. God, we praise you tonight here in this place. We thank you for the opportunity of worship and service. Now speak to us, lead us. We pray it in Jesus' name.